Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that. I don't know. For me, it was new. Again, I'm just used to the 60s kind of who catalog. And so it was interesting to have this and be like, oh, you know what? That is a new one by me. And oh, wow, those lyrics are really pointed. So I enjoyed that. But I stumbled across a a statistic this week that said, and there's been all kinds of new stuff that has come out. I think Beyonce just released a new album this week. Do I have that right? Or at least in the last two weeks or so. Thank you for those of you who are always advising me on my music. And But so all this new stuff is still coming around, but you know what's making the most money these days is the old catalog. Now, some of you are going to puff your chest out and say, yeah, it's because we made better music. Well, that might be true. (laughs) That might be true. I'm not sure. But I think it ties in a little bit to what we talked about last week when we looked at Grandson and we talked about sort of, is hope even a viable alternative? Because without hope, you don't write music. You have to have some, there's got to be some virtue behind the arts if you're going to create art. And sometimes I wonder if we're just not able to produce that kind of stuff because we wonder, what's the point? And I think sometimes in this moment, we are looking back saying, how is it that we handled times of turbulence? I think we're looking to our elders to say, how did you handle times of great turbulence? So we were talking last week about this is one of those times, I believe, But in no way did I mean to suggest that this is some sort of new thing. For we have always, or regularly at least, been in turbulence. Today's song comes from precisely such a time, and it comes from a band, The Who, who experienced massive change not only in the world, but at the time of this song were experiencing massive change in their own ranks. But to track it, we got to go back a bit. None of you need, or indeed, none of you want to hear me tell you about the 60s and 70s. I wasn't there. You were. So you know, Vietnam, the Cold War, Nixon, and the erosion of the presidency, MLK, Bobby, so on and so forth. You all could do this much better than I. Massive change that I would argue still reverberates to this day. And in 1964, in London, was born into this, was born this band, The Who, with their still iconic lineup, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townshend, John Entwistle, Keith Moon. And as one observer said, they were one of the bands that went beyond singing about rebellion. They said they were rebellion, smashing equipment, inventing the concept album, blowing up the whole idea of what it meant to put an album together, Some even credit them with spearheading the growth of heavy metal, which I need to learn a little bit more about, while also lending their influence to the punk rock movement, which strikes metal and punk rock all at the same time. That's how widespread this band was, not to mention their pointed lyrics. And if you think today's uh, song is pointed, go back and read the lyrics of Won't Get Fooled Again. But as the 70s ended and moved into the 80s, we moved post-Vietnam, change didn't stop. And that's how we think about it sometimes. Like, all right, there was this time of massive change and then things settled down. Well, no, that's not what happened in the 80s. The Cold War, which was behind the scenes around Vietnam, emerged more clearly and then loomed more ominously and nuclear tensions continued to rise, leading to the largest mass demonstration in American history. Not in the 60s, not in the 70s, in the early 80s in New York City as we were seeking nuclear de-escalation. So the 80s continue this turbulence. 
And change came to those who were invested in change. And I think that is what is so interesting about this song. Change came to those who were invested in change. As we, hear, as we read about the who, in the early 80s, tensions in the band were at an uncontrollable high because their, and their output suffered. A reason for the downfall in the quality of their music, yes, was the rather large Keith Moon-shaped hole that happened when he passed away in 1978. And we're experiencing this with the death of the drummer for the Foo Fighters. So when the drummer goes, you lose something. But it's easy, and it's easy to sing about change when it's not directly impacting you. It's another thing when it comes for you. But they tried to press on, and they released two albums, Face Dances in 1981 and the album we heard today, It's Hard, in 1982. But some years later, in an interview with Roger Daltrey, he admitted, It's Hard, the album we heard, should never have been released. And in another interview, he honestly noted that Face Dances and It's Hard were made by a band who were very unsure about whether or not they wanted to be making a record. And I think that's a terrible doubt. Change came to the change maker. A world reconstituting itself in the midst of upheaval, and now the agents of that change are themselves fearing and uncertain about change. And enter this song, Dangerous. And the more that I hear it, the more I wonder who this song is for. Is it for the world, or is it for a band trying to figure out what they're afraid of and how things are changing? This song is about fear. Well, what is fear? Its most basic level fear is the anticipation of pain. We expect that something ahead of us is going to cause us pain, discomfort. Fear emerges from the sense that something we cherish is in peril, that we are at risk of losing something of value. But as the song illustrates, I think beautifully, it is subtle, creeping, hard to identify, and often wears masks that make it look like virtue. They begin, can you feel it? Watching you in the darkness, touching you like a sickness, fear is taking control. The reason it takes control is because fear... Fear is powerful because it is clarifying. Fear is great power because it is very much clarifying. It sets up those who are with me, who love this thing that I care about and therefore are a part of the us, and those who threaten the us. And so we end up with us and them, which is how fear then contributes to polarization. Polarized groups, wherever we find them, find at their core that they are scared to death. Fear is also really powerful because it drives passion. One might say that fear makes us feel alive because it puts us in touch with the things we care about the most. And so fear is entirely natural for us, both as individuals and as communities. And because it is natural, because it is part of what it means to be a human, fear is spiritually critical. And that's what I want you to hear. Fear is spiritually critical. When we feel fear, we are asking deep spiritual questions about ourselves. This is captured by the Episcopal theologian and pastor Sam Wells, whose work I really, really enjoy, appreciate. He's such a sobriety to his work. And he wrote in a book called Be Not Afraid. He said, fear isn't itself good or bad. It's an emotion that identifies what we love. We fear because we don't want to lose what we love. We fear intensely because we love intensely. Or when we think, or what, or when we think what or whom we love is in real danger. 
So a world without fear wouldn't be a good thing because it wouldn't be a world without danger. It would be a world without love. A world without fear wouldn't be a good thing because it wouldn't be a world without danger. It would be a world without love. I think that's a powerful reflection. Because if love is spiritually critical, then so is fear. But fear is flammable and requires a careful touch. And without that touch, those who seek to do good, to protect good in the world, often find themselves perpetuating harm. Now, as I considered the agents of change who had to face change themselves, like the who, and the difficult response that can come from undetected or unidentified fear, the place where I went was this story in our gospel reading today. Mark chapter 11, a familiar reading usually read around Holy Week. The cleansing of the temple. Jesus goes in and overturns the tables. And you know the story. He goes up. Jesus has been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he goes up to the temple. And immediately, and so the people are there. And they're, they're trying to buy their sacrifices. You know, they've been on a long journey. They didn't want to bring the animals with them. So they buy the sacrifice. And then they offer the sacrifices. And our sins are all gone. And so they're doing this transaction. And Jesus says, I'm having none of this. And so he takes the tables and flips them. Other accounts say he takes a whip of cords and is driving people out. But that's not exactly what I want to talk about today. The line that strikes me in this story is this. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And I can't get this thought out of my mind. Deeply religious people, people's entire livelihood and vocation wrapped up in the service of God are out to kill somebody? How in the world do we get there? we got to sort this scene out for a second. It is not a typical congregational scene. Sometimes we try to stick it in there, and that's why it doesn't make a lot of sense. It is not a Sunday morning for us. There's two groups that are happening. There is a temple class. you got to remember, temple class was different than sort of the pastor-laity differentiation. There was a real power dynamic, a real economic dynamic going on. And so there's the temple class who's responsible for taking care of everything. And then basically who was in there was the Jerusalem citizen alongside of a few folks who had come on this pilgrimage with Jesus. And these dual reactions by everyone tell me something. There are different responses to Jesus. It tells us the crowds were spellbound by his teaching. Jesus' radicalism, his willingness to upend religious and economic power, was attractive to the crowds. It was not threatening. They were drawn to it but it was threatening to the temple class. Now here's the thing. Once upon a time, the temple class was in the place, one might say, of Jesus. Here again, once upon a time, one might say that the temple class, the priests and the scribes, were once in the place of Jesus. Once upon a time, those people were the saving grace of Jerusalem, of, not Jerusalem, of Ju- Judaism. Think about the history of Israel. They had been through exile. They had come back, but they were, they were still occupied. And now they're occupied by a brutal Roman regime. And they're doing everything they can to keep hope alive for this fledgling people. They had defended the city. They had defended Jerusalem. And they had kept hope alive through it all. Through generations, hundreds of years, Judaism had relied on its priests to show them the way. And there was a time they had done what was necessary, not always with religious purity, 
But at this point, they did what was necessary, and they partnered with Herod, who was nothing more than a Roman puppet, to get the temple built to serve the people. And it was the height of having something that mattered, a symbol that mattered to the people. But in that, once they got their temple, and once they had become close to political power, it starts to exert an influence. And one might say it becomes corrupt. And Jesus is calling out the corruption of the temple that had been building because the temple was absorbing money, like a lot, a lot of money, at the expense of poor pilgrims who had come to do piety. It doesn't take much, friends, for a religious community to be corrupted by essentially selling religious goods and services, even in the name of faith and piety. And it's always the people who see it first, which is why they're so attracted to Jesus. They see what's going on, and they're attracted to Jesus who calls it out. So when Jesus directly confronts confronts those who benefit from such a system, fear kicks in. And it's that fear that creates this awful desire that takes root in their hearts. The who would have been useful at this time, saying, fences, we put up our defenses, then we come to our senses. It may keep them out, but it keeps us in, and that makes us dangerous. Someone reflecting on fear Pastor Brian Zond, who I quote a lot, whose work I really appreciate, he wrote in his book called Water to Wine. He said, we are scripted, and this describes the temple priests and it describes so well. We are scripted to believe that reality is zero-based and that we live in a closed system. This paradigm of scarcity and insufficiency is the philosophy that undergirds our structures of systemic sin. We fear there won't be enough land, water, food, oil, money, labor to go around. So we build structures of sinful force to guarantee that those we call us will have what we call ours. We call it security. We call it defense. We call it freedom. What we don't call it is what it is, fear. Fear is the key to your soul. That makes you dangerous, so dangerous to yourself. In these temple priests, change comes for the change class. Change comes from those who had done good work, and without the ability to identify what it is they feared, that fear began to creep in and erode them, and they became dangerous to themselves, they became dangerous to the people, ultimately they become dangerous to Jesus. Blinded by fear, unable to encounter Jesus, to engage with him, they continue down a path that ultimately makes the leaders of a beautiful, peace-loving religion, our cousins in the faith, who are so often the underdog story, who are so often the recipients of violence, not the executioners of it. No, no, no. Now it makes them the oppressors who are seeking to eliminate one of their own. And throughout the generations, this story has often created anti-Semitic responses. But the proper response is not to hate on others, but rather the proper response is sorrow. To say, how in the world could such a beautiful thing turn into this such ugly moment? How could this be? Well, you're so far out of tune, better learn how to sing. That's what happened. Fear. And so in the wake of Jesus, communities of faith who were committed to change these things that we call churches, needed to be warned about the tendency for change to come to those who are change agents. And so he warns with pastoral affection. He says, my friends, he says, I need you to hear this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear and love are related. 
We will feel fear, but if we allow fear to take us to love, the fear will dissipate. It says, those who say I love God and hate their brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love a God whom they have not seen. As one commentator said, love moves towards others in the spirit of self-sacrifice. Fear shrinks from others in the spirit of self-preservation. And so in an era of change, change will come for the change makers. And friends, that is us. So we need to ask regularly and often, what are we afraid of? And to identify it, not behind, and to see it behind the mask that we put on it. And ask ourselves regularly, as we see the challenges of the world, do we see monsters or do we see people? Can we askew the polarization, which is so easy and so gratifying? Boy, it is really easy to be us and them. Ask any sports fan. Every Ravens fan knows it's at least as much fun to hate the Steelers as it is to love the Ravens. Polarization is so easy and it's so gratifying. But we've got to askew that in order to love well. Which is, often mess, which is often messy, difficult, uncomfortable, and perhaps even <laughs> dangerous. But it's what it's called for in a moment like ours. The world in which we find ourselves feels very 80s to me. Now, I was very small, so I don't know. <laughs> but turbulence has swirled for over two decades, from 9-11 to a pandemic, technological upheaval, political destruction, yada, yada, yada. The world has, be, has been rewritten, and now it must be reconstituted. And fear will be a natural companion of all of it. And the church, much like the who, is dealing with change while the world changes. But we, the church, cannot find ourselves in the cacophony of churches that are doing nothing but howling at the moon. With spiritual depth and wisdom, may we identify our fear. And in identifying our fear, may we identify what it is we love. And shed love and not fear to a world who needs that love so desperately. May we be a sink where we may bring our fears here and ultimately they are replaced by love that we might love the world the way that Jesus has called us to love it. And in that, we will, not be, we will be dangerous in many ways, but not to ourselves. We'll be dangerous to the spirit of sin, death, and the devil which swirls around us constantly. We'll be dangerous to that and not to each other.